So the obstacles are just really routine to have to go through. We all understand that they're going to come. And if we don't accept that and have the courage to get up, then there's no point in actually really going for something and having that goal because that is a part of life. It's longevity. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure of Amani Fancy on the show. Uh, good morning to you, Amani. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Julian. It's so good to have you on this morning and your happy, smiling face. Um, <laughs> it really is good. And you're an international renowned professional uh, figure skater that now has turned into a sales expert. And I'll tell the audience a little bit more about you. You've got your two times British champion in the pair skating. Mm-hmm. Um, you won the Dancing on Ice in Germany, um, the people who are in Dancing on Ice. You participated at the Youth Olympics, and you also were ranked uh, 12th and 16th at the European and World Championships, respectively. Uh, and so a lot of experience of high performance. We're going to be talking a bit more about high performance and, and achieving a lot of success. Um, you also got your own venture called F- Fancy on Ice, and you're currently now the head of growth at Ripple Impact, which is a business accelerator that helps entrepreneurs grow their businesses and build their platform. So today we will be exploring, I'd say, the dark side of high performance and you know what, what are the lessons you've learned and how that makes you a leader today. So that's going to be really interesting because I think people get caught up with just the, the end game of high performance and what the results are and what the outcomes are. But we're going to touch on behind the scenes of all that and your journey as a a champion figure skater but before we get there can you tell me what you love about what you do Amani? Absolutely I mean what I'm doing today is so different in many aspects but so similar to high performance I um, get to touch people and connect with them and really just share a beautiful synergy with regards to helping entrepreneurs helping authors um, align themselves and gain the biggest success as possible in my past it was touching people more emotionally and identifying with them and bringing them into the artistry of figure skating Um, But in both sides, there's so many similarities. And I'm just so pleased that I finally managed to find something that really sets a fire in my belly. I think that's what I love most about it. I, I, I get to connect with so many people and feel passionate about it. And there's just so much that is coming and it excites me. And in the past, it would confused me and make me worry because it's an unknown but now it's just open for so much and I'm so excited to explore that yeah you always display a lot of passion all the conversation I've had with you Amani is <laughs> always a lot of passion a lot of energy um, yeah. and what, what I, before we go into uh, the sort of your own story of, of high performance how would you define high performance from your own experience what is high performance for you That is a very good question. To me, it really is a very, very gray, blurry line between striving for excellence 
and then doing that in the wrong way. So high performance is true excellence. It's it's pushing yourself to the limits because you are in love with something and you want to just see where both your mind and body can go with it. Um, and that that excellence can be so beautiful. But as you said, there are darker sides to it. You really need to take care of yourself. And I think the people that surround you, surround you during that time mm. is are very, very important to that internal health and, and where you're going. So uh, high performance can be in sport. It can be in business. It can be all aspects. But for me particularly, it was figure skating. And there were good, there was bad, there was ugly. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was an incredible experience. And um, as you said, you gave me such a beautiful introduction, so much achievement there. But what people don't talk about is then what? What happens afterwards? What you left with? Mm. And let, let us just, just go back to, um, I guess, your, your figure skating days. Um, and, you know, you, you were very, very successful. I just gave a whole sort of um, gamut of stuff that you've done and have achieved, uh, which would be deemed as high performance. When you started, was it something that was in you that you wanted to be excellent, be the best? Or did that sort of grow or, or was it other people? Was it, where, where did that come from? Because it'd be interesting to be other people out there who are in that place of, you know, wanting to do performance or do really well in something. And, and is it an innate thing or is it something that we grow into or we get, there's a pressure from other people? It's a good question. I think it's a bit of both. So I have a father who started his life with a slush puppy machine business on the road one slush puppy machine. Then he started to sell encyclopedias and now he's the owner of an 11,000 person business facility management um, business in Oman. And it's the most successful facility management business in Oman. So he's had that journey and he really has that innate sense of self-belief and wanting to succeed and see the best of his potential. And I think genetically that may have been transferred to me because I was an eight-year-old in Oman that went to an ice rink that was mainly flooding. I mean, who who skates in Oman, the 48 degrees in summer? It was, a, it was a swimming pool. It wasn't an ice rink. It was grotty. It was horrible. It was the only one there. And I went on the ice and I immediately fell in love with the sport. And I went there more often, more often, more often until one day at age eight, I came to my dad and I said, Papa, I want to be an Olympic figure skater. Uh, no thought no vision okay let's just 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 go back a bit so where at eight years old yeah where did the thought become a you were in a country that wasn't really into figure skating because yes. nature of the country is very warm very um warm. and probably not great facilities um yeah. but also where did that thought come from i want to be an olympic uh figure skater which is is the top of what you could be i I went there once because my dad was on a business trip. My mum was trying to find something for me to do because I was always a very hyperactive kid that needed to be entertained. And I was doing ballet and gymnastics and figure skating. But I, I got onto the ice and I was seeing the big girls do all of their tricks. And I'd fall on my face just trying to copy them and 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 manage what they were doing and then I slowly watched more figure skating and my mum and I watched the Olympics and I loved that and then I saw this woman called Sasha Cohen who was my idol she was an American figure skater and I said this is what I wanted and I went up to my dad and this is the first time I actually signed a contract at the age of eight because rather than saying Amani you're insane he said okay um here is a contract he wrote one line which was, 
I will give you the freedom to succeed as long as you get your A's in school. And by freedom to succeed, the next step was moving to Dubai because there were better facilities. And I spent age eight to 11 there. And then I got scouted by an Olympic figure skating school in Germany in a tiny village full of cows and mountains, 3000 people. And that's when I said again, look, we've got this little contract. Am I allowed to go there? And I was homeschooled because there was no time to go to school and actually manage that. They wouldn't let you go to competition. So I did a really great homeschooling program, but it was self-taught. And a lot of the time it was me at home without that motivation. But we kept that contract right up to university and he gave me the complete freedom to succeed. And I moved there with my mum. He commuted and She's actually fallen in love with Oberstdorf now, the little village in Germany, and has moved there and is still living there. Interesting that came from your dad, that contract, that it almost gave you the, the boundaries, but mm-hmm. gave you that freedom in between that. And Absolutely. do you think that really helped you? Because you knew where the boundaries were, but you had this passion and you're not entirely sure how it was going to work. Uh, did that really inspire you and set you off to go, yeah, I'm going to do this? I think just knowing that I had the backing of my father was everything. I could, I mean, this is an extremely expensive sport. I had to move countries. I had to move to the best coaches in Europe. Um, knowing that I had that full support was very, very, it just, it, it made it happen. It wouldn't have happened without that. However, I really didn't care about anything else. All I wanted to do was skate. There really wasn't a vision there or a why there. It was just innate. I wanted to go. I wanted to be the best. And I pushed and pushed myself. But it never felt like work. And it never felt like pressure. Because when you're truly in love with something and, and you're passionate about it, you just, even on the bad days, it, it's still, it's your life. You just, it's it's there. It's what you want to do. Mm. When you set out on that journey of being inspired to be an Olympic uh, athlete, um, did you know how you were going to do that? I mean, what, what was the, besides going to your dad and and him giving you support, what were your next steps and how did you sort of figure that out at the age of eight? <laughs> so, uh, All I knew was I need to skate. And I need to work hard. At that age, you don't know that you need this coach. You need the nutritionist. You need the dietitian. You need Mm. the fitness and the mental training and the meditation and the visualization, all of that. Um, But I grew into that. um, And I was exposed to what high-performing athletes needed. I went to Germany and everyone was better than me. Everybody had, had that kind of team around them. And I just saw what it would take. And my dad always reminds me of a moment where I looked at one of the European champions, um, Stefan Lambiel, with like eyes of wanting to be where he was, but having no idea how to get there and how hard it would be. But I think that's the innocence of being young and the beauty of being young as well. You just go for things. And I can tell you it was much harder when I went into this reinvention of the business life Mm. to have that conviction because you then understand vision, you understand the obstacles. Mm. As a young person, it is a lot easier um, and you just push through it. But I also realized that there were limitations in my figure skating um there's only a handful of people that can be the olympic champion the difference between 12th in europe and first in europe is massive um so you realize that as you get older but you do still push through because i think hard work and talent are just um, such a beautiful combination Mm. 
And how did you deal with, because I'm sure along the way you would have had some disappointments, some setbacks and things just weren't going well. How did you sort of overcome that? And, and what did you learn that you use nowadays to help you get through those difficult moments? Um, I was a solo skater until I was 15. Um, and I was very strong in the artistry side of things. Um, the create the creativity, the, the improvisation, the connecting with the audience, but my jumps, my technique was never up there. Um, and then I got an offer to do figure skating as a pair skater. And I said, no, because of exactly this, the disappointments are so hard just by yourself. Imagine you're the one who disappoints your partner in the figure skate. I mean, he doesn't fall, you do fall. To me, that was like, oh my goodness, one, I don't want to share my victory, but two, I definitely don't want to share the failures. That's going to be even worse. Um, but this certain partner just really pushed and pushed and pushed and I tried it out. And then the lifts, I think I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, the lifts, the throws, everything that really just was something that I really enjoyed. And during that, I guess, you know, it sounds so cliche, but every fall is a lesson and you just get up and you have that perseverance because you have that conviction. This is the passion. This is what you're doing. And you just have to get up and continue. Um, and I think that's exactly the same in business as well. There's mm -hmm. going to be obstacles along the road. But if you know you have good intentions and you're working hard, you will get through them. And I, mm -hmm. I always say in the business world, if you want to be a unicorn company, if you want to really make it to the top, top and scale up, you have to have true conviction in what you're doing. And then obstacles really don't matter. Mm -hmm. They're going to come. We know this. Life is unpredictable. But that self, that innate self-belief, which, yes, I had a great mentor, my father, who helped me with that. But it mm. is within me now, even without him. It is just a conviction of your own believing in your product, believing in yourself and believing in your team and surrounding mm. yourself with people who are smarter than you. It's the same in figure skating as in business. You want to surround yourself with people who know more than you, who are talented, mm. who who can, who are better than you in their respective niches. And and that's with business as well. I think that's what makes a great leader. Yeah, there's some real lessons there. That that whole sense knowing that, that, that your purpose, which obviously you had this sort of passion for being a, a champion figure skater, which probably at the time was deep down your mission. You probably didn't realize that at the time what it was. Um, but it's what what that make that comes alive is that that belief, isn't it? That absolute belief, and whether that's belief coming from others like your father who sort of empowered you and, and believed in you but we've also got to have our own belief because when you do fall over as you say not just metaphorically you did fall over on, on the ring oh my God, yes. um, I'm, I'm sure it would have hurt and um, is getting back up is takes the courage because a you've got to face a little bit of I've just messed up here but also it hurts there's a lot of energy involved but as you as you back up, you learn. You learn. That I'm going to do something slightly differently, and that's the same in life, isn't it? We do fall down, we learn from it. But to keep going is that belief. And you said it came from your father that belief. But did you have something for yourself, or was that just that belief was just a a dream, or was it is as that belief got stronger as you became older Absolutely. as a, as an athlete? Absolutely. It got stronger. You know, I mean, it's it's scientific as well. You get good at something, you start believing in yourself more. And that happened for me as well. But you know that getting up you, you at the beginning, definitely it's courage. But at some point when you do have that strong self-belief, it's routine. 
And it mm. should be routine in business and in high performance sports as well, because you just if you, if you really have that goal ahead of you and that direction, that's all that really matters. And with that team as well, it should never be you against your team member. It's your team member and you against the problem that's that's holding you back from this goal. So the obstacles are just really routine to have to go through. We all understand that they're going to come. And if we don't accept that and have the courage to get up, then there's no point in actually really going for something and having that goal because that is a part of life. It's longevity. Yeah. And um, it was within me as well. I think that's a that's something that you develop as you get older as well. Um, but it's um, it's definitely a beautiful quality that comes from a lot of self-love and self-conviction and proving yourself to mm. yourself not to anyone else society will expect you to do so many things or so little I always felt pressured from society to choose one thing that you have to choose something and do that for the rest of your life and it's not true and I've proven that to myself in my reinvention mm. and that self-proof is correlated to that self-belief mm. Well, all what you've learned are all transferable skills anyway. And I think and often people who, who attain what you've attained um, do find that transition difficult because that's the, their life has been obsessed by one particular sport uh, and how to transition, that's difficult. And that's that's, a, that's another conversation in how you, how you do that, how you transition to something new. Um, now, obviously with high performance and you, you, you were high, you were high performing figure skater, you were winning sort of championships uh, as a paired skater. Um, there's always a cost to high performance in some shape or form. Um, and that could be, you know, the sacrifice of time away from family, friends, um, long, long days, long nights working hard on something. It can be, unfortunately the mental health impact as well uh, physical impacts uh, we don't look after ourselves because we get obsessed by something talk me through some of the areas that that, that you perceive now as, as a cost and perhaps didn't realize at the time I think definitely not going to school was something that was um I didn't have that experience and when I see my little cousins or younger friends as well have a locker at school I get really jealous nowadays. Oh, I would have loved to have had a locker and had that whole experience and everything. But, you know, in the end, as I said, I wouldn't change it for the world because I got to experience something vastly different. And I don't know if you've read um, the book Malcolm Gladwell, The Outliers. No, I haven't, no. So he talks about people who are outliers and he he teaches a very important lesson, which is if you give 10,000 hours to something you have mastered your craft. And it doesn't matter what you gave 10,000 hours to. You've just learned a different kind of resilience, perseverance, and mindset. And I think that's the transferable skill that I got from that. So I wouldn't, the school stuff, the amount of time that I spent figure skating, not being able to see friends, probably made me healthier. I didn't party as much. I was really doing a great sport mm -hmm. and got to keep myself healthier in that aspect. But I would, what I'd say was definitely something that could have cost me and did during my sport was the people around me. So figure skating is a very aesthetic sport, um, which it shouldn't be because it's, it's very, it's about physics. It does. It's not really, you don't have to be optically pleasing to everyone to be a good figure skater, mm. but you're very used to seeing the strong man and the tiny pair skater ballerina girl. Um, and I've always had thighs, 
and um, muscle and and being a little bit more more on the stronger side and on the voluptuous side even though I was 47 kilos and 10% body fat that wasn't enough um and I think what costs a lot of skaters and many have gone through much worse than I have are the certain things that happen when people around you even people who are supposed to be qualified are not educated on how to treat children treat mm-hmm. youth, represent youth are not educated in nutrition and best practices on physics and you know you can just get a license as a figure skater by doing a few coaching sessions improving that but you don't have to do the psychology behind it the understanding mm-hmm. and you're spending every single day really just grooming this 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 human being or a pair team into the best they can be. So you have a massive influence on them. And things that happened to me were, I mean, I was put on a scale every single week. If I was under 47 kilos, I was allowed on the ice. If I was over, I'd be banned from the ice. Um, My coach made bets with other students on how much I'd put on that week um, and made sure to make a public announcement of how much that weight was. I was put on the scale and told I was optically unpleasing next to my thin partner and that I'm such an embarrassment to the Federation. Why am I even here? Mm. Um, I remember once asking for three days of holiday, which, I mean, is totally understandable. When you get off the ice, you really need you, you need a lot more time to come back into it. So the three days mm. of holiday, you don't really take that much. You take three weeks a year and that's once and that's it. But that's known and that's okay. Mm. But I took three days of holiday and he said, if you come back with more than 500 grams on you, you'll run around the ice rink until you puke. And these are the things that so many of my friends, when I tell them this, they say, Amani, I'm so surprised you don't have an eating disorder. How are you? I mean, and I love food. I'm very lucky. I have a great relationship with food. I eat everything and anything and I love it. There are so, so many young skaters that were going through the same things as I was and that got into such unhealthy habits, which Mm -hmm. were not even just eating disorders, but standing on a scale and putting food in your mouth um, and then spitting it out so that you could get the taste but didn't actually take on any calories. And you just can imagine what that does to you in the longevity of things. And I think that was the biggest opportunity cost. It was so much self-hatred during that time and I even got into unhealthy practices I mean I never had a formal eating disorder ever but knowing that I was going to be weighed that day there were times that I would go and make sure that I released all of my food so that I could be weighed 300 grams less than I would be tactically I thought it was smart just to make sure but imagine what that does to a 16, 17-year-old mind. Mm. Um, and I think that was very difficult. And also, as a figure skater, you're in a tunnel. You have tunnel vision. You have no idea. You're in a bubble as well. No idea what's happening around the world. It becomes your identity and your soul identity. Mm. Who are you outside of it? And that's what people don't talk about. That is the very scary part of post-athlete depression. And you hear this word, nobody talks about it. You talk about the highlights, you talk about the successes. Mm. And and we also talk about mental health a little bit more now, but what about mental health afterwards? Mm. And that's where I really struggled. That Mm. 
very difficult for me. That's quite shocking what you've shared there, because I think, um, I mean, I've got four daughters, so they get a lot of exposure to the social media pressure um, and just general, the body sort of pressure, uh, have to look perfect and all that type of thing. Um, at the time when that was happening, being told to, you know, you know, your coach was taking bets on whether you're going to be over the 47 kilos. Um, if you went back from holiday, you know, to run around an ice rink until you puked basically to get rid of the weight or whatever, um, terrible practices and, um, uh, abusive practices and basically, um, did you know at the time that wasn't good or were you just in this bubble and passion desire that it sort of didn't really resonate with you as it been wrong at the time um and how did you deal with that as well yeah it was a bit of both so with regards to being weighed and the bets being made and not being slim enough I thought that was very normal I saw it everywhere um I mean at the same time that was happening to me there was a girl at 27 kilos in an Israeli um, eating disorder camp that was losing her life so mine didn't seem so bad at all and you know uh, we say pain is relative and you should still be able to feel it but when somebody's going through that I was like oh then what am I complaining for so absolutely I was in a bubble during that time and you know your your parents as well as amazing as my parents were they get sucked into that bubble because there is a very gray line of striving for excellence I'd come home and without my mom knowing what had just been said to me, I'd be spooning Nutella as a, you know, it's your defense mechanism immediately. That was my, that was my go-to. Nutella was always my thing. And I ate so much of it, I can't eat it anymore today. But um, I'd go home and I'd immediately eat something. So it had a very counterproductive effect. And then she'd say, Amani, you know, we need to be taking care of this. We need it. out of good intentions. But again, then it happened at home. It happened on the ice. What I did know was wrong is when he said, I will make you run around the ice rink till you puke. And I said to him, and I was 15 or 16, 16 at the time, and I said to him, then I'll report you to the Ice Skating Association. And he just went quiet. And um, from there, he went and talked to my parents and made it a very big deal. And the initial reaction was, why would you talk to your coach like that? Um, he, you should have that dynamic with your coach that they're able to say certain things. And when I explained the full story, there was complete mm. understanding, but again, there was pushback. So it never felt like you could stand up to that person. I also once cried in front of him and said to him, why do you do this kind of why do you do these kind of things to me? I don't understand that. And it just was pushed over. There was just no support, not from the partner, not from the external federation members. It just, mm. yeah, it was difficult. And I know people might listen to this right now who in a, in a workplace context are basically, it's basically bullying what you're, you're, you're talking about there. And people are bullied from their bosses, you know, told to work so many hours and can't go on holiday or go get this in deadline or, or there'll be trouble those type of language that's used, um, uh, which is obviously unfortunate. Uh, with I know the desire for high performance, and I'm sure your coach was there to try and make you the best you could. And I appreciate there's a there's a an alignment there. But is there a way of creating high performance without that sort of mental health impact 
I think there is definitely. I wrote my dissertation on the um, on the darker sides of figure skating. I studied criminology and sociology, try to put that together, and this is what inspired me. And um, you know, what was happening was behind closed doors. I think if the federation knew, there's good people in that federation. NISA, the National Ice Skating Association, there's good people there if they knew what was happening, and I see this now because the first time I even just talked, this is the second time I'm talking about this, and there's bits I want to share that I've not even shared before, but talking about what we just said with the weight and staying on the scale and the bets being made, when I shared that, there was so much support, and and people said, if only we had known, if only we had known, Amani, we would have been there to help you. So I think definitely having more qualifications for coaches, you can't just, I mean, in Germany, you can also just call yourself a coach. You don't need to have a license. Mm. That's another thing. Um, and you can work with young children no matter what, without any formal, formal experience. Um, having more qualifications there, making sure that federations send supervisors in once in a while that do not interact with the coach, but solely interact with the student. Um, and just having... You know, we have a great code of ethics in the Olympic Committee and just revising that and implementing. It can't just mm. be written. It can't be written. I would just advocate for more involvement there and just making sure that we're practicing the way that we preach in those code of ethics and having more involvement of the right human beings, maybe selected by the athlete. Mm. And it's being more holistic of of somebody as an individual, isn't it? Because I know that like the British Cycling uh, were berated for bullying um and although they had a lot of high performance of golds at 2012 and various other olympics um but there was a lot of bullying going on and unhelpful behaviors it's trying to a make sure that that's unacceptable and there's other ways of creating high performance uh, but i think it's focusing a lot more on the well-being health holistically of an athlete not just the, the medals they get because that becomes that you just end up you're just a commodity Absolutely. Uh, which is so sad, isn't it? That you just become, or you're there, you're just going to get as a gold or a championship. You see medal. that with the Russian figure skaters, they have two seasons and they're out because they are pushed to the nth degree. As soon as they hit puberty, their bodies change. They can't be pushed to that amount anymore. They have hip replacements, they have knee replacements because they've been like doing 100 jump drills in just an hour. And then they're left and the new commodity is put in. You never see an incredible, incredible Russian young figure skating female on the stage for more than two to three years or two to three seasons. Um, and it's it, it really is what happens to the human being. It, they are still a human being. And I would go as far to say it's not just about the physical and the mental, but also think about what happens afterwards make sure they have exposure to other things. So many people sacrifice school and didn't even go to school. Um, and sure, you can then have a career as a coach and you can have a career as a fitness coach as well. And those are beautiful careers to have as well. But give them a choice, at least. Give them give them enough experience to make a choice afterwards. That choice for me was so difficult because I knew nothing else. I was very lucky to have a father who knew a lot and who made sure that I was learning a lot and that had that mm. agreement with me with the A's because that gave me a it gave me university and university opened my mind. Mm. But that's not the case for everyone. And I think that's a very important part of the mental health as well. 
So obviously you then you transitioned you know, from university and then went into the world of work. And how was that transition? You just touched on it before that you found that difficult, almost the post-athlete blues depression or, or, or whatever you called it. Um, how did, what was that and how did you help you get yourself through that to where you are today? So when I decided to stop figure skating, it was, I'll just stop for three months and that turned to indefinite. Um, And it was when I started university. I had a scholarship at university, a sports scholarship. I found a new partner as well um, in England because I'd moved to England and I was ready to start this career. And then suddenly I was seeing that I was missing out on so many things and I was starting to fall out of love with the skating So I said, okay, I'll take a three-month break. And in those three months, I suddenly had no one weighing me. I had the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I put on 15 kilos. And um, without even, this isn't with with drinking alcohol or anything. This was just stopping sport and eating. Mm. Probably eating a little bit too much. But, I mean, Pizza Hut was something new for me as well. I was (laughs) very, very engaged with that restaurant. They made a lot of business off of me. But yeah, it was it was a big change. And immediately, even though I may have looked relatively normal, optically, I knew what I looked like beforehand. So that was very difficult to cope mm. with as well. And I spent a year just really staying in my room, watching Netflix and um, eating lots of food. And then on two years after uh, stopping figure skating, I said, you know what, I love myself no matter what I look like. And again, that sounds cliche, and it's so much easier said than done. But I just slowly started to to do the things that I knew I'd enjoy, despite what I looked like. Mm. And I was being successful in those things. I was the hip. I was the captain of the hip hop team at university. I became the president of um, a society called Enactus, which is a nonprofit that helped refugees and food waste projects, and it was amazing. I went into the poker society because I enjoyed playing poker and I started doing these things and I started really loving myself despite despite having a different body but a very very valuable body still Mm. that's still you know as a 20 year old you want to still get the attention from boys and you you want to make sure that like you feel comfortable in your body and that all still happened so I really learned to love myself in this Mm. wholesome body and then I got a call from Dancing on Ice And they said they wanted me to audition. And I was at this weight, which for a figure skater was obese. So I was very, very scared. I can't believe you're saying that. (laughs) For a figure skater, honestly, (laughs) it was obese. It was 62 kilos. You can't lift somebody at 62 kilos. Nobody would allow you to skate like that. So it was very scary for me. But this was Dancing on Ice. It was different. It was a TV show. Mm. So the person who called me to let me, to, to give me this audition, I knew her quite well from the skating world. And I told her, I can't come. I'm too scared. And she said, Amani, they want to know your personality. They know that fitness can change and that you can get in shape to do the jumps and stuff. Um, But just come. And I went and I got the job the next day, despite, again, what I looked like. And for the shows, I didn't change drastically. I maybe lost. So so were you you a a contestant or were you the professional on there? I was the professional. You were the professional. I was the professional. And then you get paired with a celebrity. Yeah. So I got onto there and um, 
I was known as the curvy figure skater because I didn't lose too much weight. I was probably, I lost about six, seven kilos really healthily just so that I could do my jumps and I had the stamina, which is okay to do as well. For some sports, you do need to lose some weight, but I stayed at around 55 kilos, Mm. which was very different to my 47. And I felt good and I felt happy. And, Mm. and I was known as this person, but so many girls came to me and said, thank you, because now I know I can be a figure skater too, even though I don't, don't look like the stereotypical person on tv um and i did those two years and then you know it was what now again this question of what now because endorphins press you're you've got the glamour you're performing to three million people and then i would come home because i was doing this at the same time as university and write my dissertation and be one of many and i felt ordinary in the worst way possible um and during this time What I realized now, and I didn't know then, I was very depressed. These ups and downs really Mm. took a toll on me. Um, The dopamine of being on TV and getting all that attention and then coming home and not knowing what to do with myself. And that progressed even further after Dancing on Ice because then it was just done. Dancing on Ice had finished. They didn't get enough viewers. So the whole TV show was done in Germany. And and then, then came the real understanding that I had post-athlete depression and I wouldn't leave my bed I wouldn't shower I was really really struggling with this concept of I have no idea what to do with my life and it sounds like such a privileged problem but I had structure for so long Mm -hmm. university was done now I graduated with first honors distinction it was great dancing and ice done successfully but then I was left to, in my head, fend for myself. And everybody said around me, my mom, my dad, take your time. You'll find out what you want to do. It's okay. Um, But it was such a horrible feeling, an unsettling feeling of, I can't be good at anything else. I've only done one thing for for my whole life. Will I find something that I feel passionate about that's very important to me? Will I be able to do this? Um, And I actually got so depressed um, that I needed to go on medication, that I ended up checking myself into a clinic. And this is a year and a half ago. Um, I spent three months at a clinic. And again, the stereotypes on that, this is the first time I've said this out loud, um, like publicly, because immediately people think, oh, a madhouse. People where you send people who really are just can't do anything with themselves. And that's it's not true. It was self-optimization. There were people there that could have very well continued their life without it, but wanted to be the best versions of themselves. And I learned so much there. I really did and finally settled on this idea of entrepreneurship. And that's when things started to get better. Yeah, I can imagine you're since the age of eight having that yeah you know, that daily structure your identity as a, as a as a night figure skater uh, and then suddenly whatever 10 12 years later that's completely gone i mean that's half your life um disappeared overnight uh, and i can get imagine that must be quite hard um what what was the you say you got into entrepreneurship but what was the ways besides going into sort of clinic to get some help how did you navigate out of that and what lessons can you learn from that that you share with others and say when things like go wrong in their jobs or do people do a big career transition or they lose the job at the age of 40 and they've been doing it for 20 odd years and they then they jump into something else what lessons did you learn in how to get out of that sort of 
depression yeah. and find something new that still resonated with you, still got a passion, still got something that got you excited about doing? Absolutely. Um, so the clinic wasn't for that. It was mainly to actually just really rewire myself and be able to start enjoying the things I used to because the depression was so bad. Um, what happened afterwards, and I think a few pieces of advice here is, one, you're not alone. We all go through the phases of, am I doing the right thing? Is this what's fulfilling me? Actually, I want reinvention. You are not alone. It is so normal, is number one. Two, what really helped me was deselecting things. Go out and try things. Just go and try certain things that you think may interest you. I did. I tried a barrister's chambers internship. It was great. I enjoyed it. Could have been a solid plan B, but no fire in my belly. Um, private equity, lovely human beings around me. Absolutely not the job for me. Very slow paced. I need the adrenaline. And this is the thing. Also list down your values. What do you really like? And make a long list, but then circle the three that you really, really mm. feel are important to you in your job. And for me, that's helping others, performance and adrenaline. So I was thinking, how can I get that? And there was a, I was torn between, should I go back into the creative industry? Should I dance, sing and act? Or should I go maybe into entrepreneurship where I can get that adrenaline because I'm starting something fresh and I'm talking to people and it's always a risk. And honestly, my aim in life is to do both. And so many people still tell me I can't, but I know I can. I have to be able to do both because I have to nurture both. They both make me so happy. I want to dance. I want to act. I want to do things that I love. And I also want to be the most phenomenal business leader that I can possibly be. Of, a, of serial entrepreneurship. There are so many things within me that I want to bring out and help, whether that be nonprofits or for profits. Um, and I think it really is just testing, finding out. And then when you find something you enjoy, give it a bit of time. Don't do a one week internship. Like go and spend a good month there and immerse yourself and see how you feel. And then never be afraid to change again. Because all of what you're going to build on in that in that learning experience, in your past mm. career, in whatever you're learning, even if you only spend a few months there, it will help you for your future. It's mm. okay to change. And it, it is right. And I think often, I mean, I've, I've career changed myself uh, five, six years ago. And you use all your experiences from the previous, because often people think I could do a career change and then everything else before me is not valid. But no, it is. It's all valid. It's all who you are. It's your skills. It's your mindsets. It's your understanding. It's your exposure you've had. Uh, it's, it's just as valid and we should bring our whole self. Um, going back into, into leadership, you know, knowing your experience of what you had, uh, certainly in the, the darker side of, of your experience, how are you now in how you lead in your organization and when you are leading people, uh, how, how has that made you think differently about that or the lessons you've had from your own experience of that? I think, um, just trying to think how to phrase this correctly. Ego is something that I think a lot of high performance, uh, high performance athletes, high performers have. And I think it's one of the worst things you can have in leadership. Um, you're you're kind of made to have this ego. You know, you've got a script. I'm the figure skater. I'm Amani Fancy. And I am number 12 in Europe and 16th in the world and two times British champion. 
when that gets crushed or, or changed, ego comes into play. And I always say as a leader, not having an ego and surrounding yourself with people who are better than you is what's really going to propel you to success. And you shouldn't be afraid of them being better than you. Again, that comes to that core self-belief that I know how to lead. I can manage them really well and I can bring them the success that they want. Mm -hmm. You want happy people around you. You want smart people because only then will a vision align. And I think alignment and vision is extremely important too. So this is why the CEO of Ripple Impact and myself have such a special bond because I fell in love with the vision. I never feel like I'm selling anything. To be quite transparent, I negotiated their services for my contract when I came on board. <laughs> I am preaching what I know. And I, I really do love it. And I think that's so important because truth serum will always come out. And by truth serum, I mean, people are going to be able to identify whether you love what you're doing and mm. what you and that will be with your employees as well, with your whole team. Mm. So just make sure they want to be there and make sure they're valued and that they are smarter than you in their respective niches. Because mm. nobody's going to replace you. You have that very unique power of being yourself. Nobody's going to replace you as the founder, the visionary that you are. But make mm. sure you have that team that that fall in love with that vision too. Mm. Um, thank you for your time today, Amani. Thank you for sharing and being very open about some of the, the difficulties. And I, and it's not to talk about them in a negative way, but to use them as, as A, exposing things, which I think is important, but also to get some lessons and learnings from it, uh, from all of us, because I think we're all facing challenges in different ways within our organization. And it's always good to hear people's stories and how you can come through things and how it can shape you and how... It can make you a better person and also appreciate how you then impact other people with that. So there's some real positives. So I, I really thank you for your A, your your energy and your passion that you have, but the the openness and the transparency you shared today. Uh, it's been a delight to talk to you. Um, if people want to connect with you and want to engage a bit more and get to know you a bit more, um, how can they do that? Absolutely. So first of all, you gave me an opportunity to speak my truth, Julie, and I cannot thank you enough for that because it's not easy, but if I can just help one person, it's more than worth it. Um, so thank you. Thank you. And with regards to connecting with me, um, look, reinvention at its core, if that's something you're thinking of, Ripple Impact is somewhere you definitely should be. We help entrepreneurs and we help any kind of visionary. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. Just really reposition themselves in the market as whatever they want to be. And we really tailor to the individual. So if you're ever looking for some help there and some guidance there, that's definitely the place to look. And you can contact me on LinkedIn. And if you just want to talk and get to know me or if you need any help in any aspect of your life, LinkedIn. Instagram, um, my handle's Armani Fancy, so you can find me there. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Armani. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. We'll help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com. Mm-hmm.